Hey Whiskey Ringers, it is the end of spring and almost into summer, and I have some big updates for you. First off, in case you haven't heard, we are going to be doing our first ever Whiskey Ring Podcast Barrel Pick. It is going to be not one, but two barrels of Jack Daniels Barrel Proof Rye straight from Lynchburg. And if that wasn't incentive enough, one of your fellow patrons, a patron at the $25 level, is going to be joining me for the pick. This is going to be the first pick of many. If you want your chance to be part of a pick team, this is the perfect time to up that Patreon pledge to $25. There are only four spots available at that tier. Next up is an upcoming event that I am super excited about. This is going to be the first ever virtual tasting with Riachi Distillery in Lebanon. I got to try these guys when they were in the US for just a couple of days, and this is some phenomenal whiskey. They are the only distillery actively making whiskey in Lebanon right now, and this is a tasting you're just not going to want to miss. It's going to be on June 24th. Make sure to order by June 17th to make sure you get your sample kit in time. If you are a patron or a supporter or a member of the Whiskey Ringers group on Facebook, make sure to use that discount code at checkout to get your 15% off. Hope to see you there, and thank you so much for supporting. Now, here's another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the, a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. This is, before I start and introduce my guest, we were just chatting beforehand, and it turns out that if you include published podcasts, recorded ones to come out, as well as bonus ones that have already come out, this is actually going to be the 100th podcast that is recorded and the 100th episode put out. Now, it'll be, I believe, episode 95 in the charts, but just wanted to take a special note that it will be episode 100 overall. And it's been an absolute pleasure and privilege getting to this point over the last two plus years. Uh, and I'm thrilled to have on somebody that I've had on before, but in a completely different capacity um, to join me for this special episode to talk about a completely new whiskey that also touches on one of my favorite topics and the ones that I'm most passionate about. So all that saccharine is out of the way. I'm happy to welcome back Ari Sussman. You may well, well remember him from our episode on Mammoth Distilling. Uh, mentions of him through uh, other episodes having to do with uh, Rose and Rye, with different projects around the country, around the world. He's uh, quite a well-traveled gentleman in terms of the whiskey and spirits world. But today, I have him on to talk about a new venture, which is Outsider Spirits. And it's his new venture in conjunction with Eric Church and Raj Alva. So with all that, Welcome back, Ari. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations on the very impressive milestone. A uh, hundred long form podcasts in two years is no small feat. And uh, so huge round of applause to you. Thank you. It's been, it's really been a blast and I uh, can't wait for the next hundred. So I've already <laughs> got the next eight or nine scheduled. So <laughs> I think I'm going anywhere. Think again. So jumping right in. Uh, we were we were chatting a little bit, like I said, before the before we started recording. And uh, you know, normally I like doing a lot of research and and listening to other episodes, interviews, and all this. But um, as far as this one goes, this one's very new. You announced, I believe, on May third. 
uh, you guys went live with this? That sounds about right, uh, that, which is about three weeks ago. Yeah, as of recording. So we're uh, recording on, on May 22nd, uh, just for reference. So yeah, this is something brand new. He's talked about it with a couple of outlets, with uh, notably Mark Gillespie over at WhiskeyCast. And other than that, though, been a little tough to do some research because they're you guys are brand new so it's which is fantastic and i love it too so with that let's just jump in to going into the story of, of how outsider spirits as an organization as a thing came to be yeah so uh, it did not start with me it started with friendship between our two founders eric church who is a musician and performance artist, and Raj Alva, who's a serial entrepreneur. Uh, they both share a passion for golf, and they met on a golf course. They, um, they're they serious competitive golf players. They don't, they're, they're the real deal, and they, they're passionate about golf, and they travel the world playing golf with very good golfers. <laughs> and uh, they were partnered up, I should know it, what golf club. I'm, I'm decidedly not a golfer. Um, uh, it's like they say in the big Lebowski, obviously you're not a golfer. Um, and, uh, but Eric and Raj were, were paired up in one of these pairing tournaments. And, you know, from the looks of it, they sort of come from different worlds. Um, Raj was born in India. He talks about, uh, being born with, with, you know, in, in, I wouldn't say poverty, but certainly not in opulence um, in any, in any sense of the word. Eric comes from North Carolina and they each found their way in life. Raj's family ended up moving to Saginaw, Michigan of all places, which is just actually up the road from where I am. Uh, Raj went to uh, University of Michigan um, for undergrad and then Harvard Business School. Eric Grew up in, uh, in in North Carolina and had a dream of one day being a country superstar, a musical superstar, which he achieved at a relatively young age. He became a musical legend. Um, and uh, like I said, they met on this golf course and they discovered that they both had a number of shared passions beyond golf, including family. They're both very tight, close with their family. And, uh, and whiskey. Eric had... Previously, uh, a song about Jack Daniels and has released products with Jack Daniels before. And Raj has an incredible palette and whiskey collection, um, appreciates rare whiskeys, um, rare scotches, can speak eloquently and passionately and knowledgeably um, about all kinds of whiskeys. And on the golf course, I, they just came up with this... Uh, so we say for cocktail idea of coming of, of, of starting their own whiskey company that would approach whiskey making in a different way than most contemporary brands do. Um, so they set out to, to make great whiskeys uh, since they both consider themselves a bit of outsiders as far as the whiskey world goes there. They're not sort of in the, in the, in the epicenter of you know, Kentucky or whatnot. It's sort of an outsider's view Um of uh, of whiskey making and decided that they would lean into that outsider's view and they would try to do things differently and they would try to innovate and see how far they could push the 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 boundaries and 
nurture creativity um, and, uh, and experimentation and uh, essentially without regard to geopolitical designations like states, um, which again, not, that's an outsider's perspective in a place like the US, uh, that they would be agnostic about location and, and, and where products came from as long as they were great. And this concept of bringing things together and blending them, they sort of roughly had this idea. Um, one day I got a phone call saying, there's a, an interesting, I got a phone call from a, a mutual friend um, that knows them and, and knows me as well and said, there are two really extraordinary individuals who have an idea for a spirits company. Maybe you just want to talk with them and see how it goes. And uh, I, I had the opportunity of chatting with each of them individually. And sometimes you have conversations and one thing just leads to the next thing and, and you can tell there's a vibe and there's a there's a melding of ideas and for me that happened both in my conversations with with Raj as well as my conversations with Eric they were just beautiful and free-flowing and every time someone had an idea it would lead to entire new threads to talk about and so that's a great feeling when you when you find that feeling in a conversation with someone in, in this industry and there's such a nurturing of ideas and creativity, and you know that everyone in the room can execute. Um, that's rare, and you you can't not follow up on those opportunities because you'll lay awake in bed wondering what happened, what what could have been. I hear you. I've been uh, <laughs> give a shout out to my home bar, travel bar. It's it's one of those things that every time I go down there whether it's just for an event or just a drink, you know, just chat with, with, I don't know, just to visit. Um, I always meet somebody, you know, I've had the pleasure. Um, I don't know if she's listening or not. I've had the pleasure of meeting Amanda Schuster, who's a fantastic writer and just came out with a new book on cocktails. Uh, you know, Kurt Maitland's a uh, number of other New York city people and people from around the world, frankly, as well. And, there is something to be said about tending to say yes to things, you know, and uh, I can, I can sense it's, it's hard to say, it's not that it's hard to say no, it's that it's so exciting to say yes to meeting these new opportunities and people, things like that, which I can hear in the way you're describing how the story came about. Um, now this, this may be a, a question that ultimately has to go back to to Eric in particular, um, but it applies to the whole team as well. And that is, you know, you mentioned he's done these whiskey specific projects with Jack Daniels, um, and it, I remember reviewing that product too. And you know, you can search the review on on the website. But the as the next question is kind of two part. The first one is how did the team envision this venture separating Eric from what he's done with Jack Daniels, not to erase it, but to, you know, say that, okay, this is more than just a celebrity brand where this is going to be his brand that he wants to stand behind. And it's his own thing. Yeah. Well, first of all, that 
I'm not going to put words in Eric's mouth. He is a sure, sure. far more articulate, even you know, than I am. For absolutely, um, he he had wonderful, successful product with Jack Daniels, which is a incredible, venerable brand out of the state in which he lives, Tennessee. Um, and and I can't speak to his intentions, um, but what I can say is, Eric is a relentlessly creative human being. And I think he's always looking for a new challenge. And uh, he, I'm a big fan of, of those products that he put out. I'm a big fan of a song of his called Jack Daniels, which he performs in concert. And we'll get to his performance. I mean, I've seen him in concert now and it's, he's, he's an incredible performer, like <laughs> men crying, women cry, like people rocking out. He's, he's, that's a whole other skill set that he has. Uh, but I think that he is, he has this philosophy. He told me this on like, basically on our first phone call. I had a similar question. You know, why, why do this? Is this something that you're serious about? And he had this answer that was basically saying, it's okay to break things. <laughs> it's okay to, if something's working, that doesn't mean that you don't kind of take it apart and, do it in a different way. He's not resting on his laurels. He's not resting on his celebrity. Um, he's a creative person. He has a uh, sort of a relentless creativity. And I think that maybe the experience with Jack Daniels gave him a, a sense of what is possible in this industry from a creative point of view. And uh, this is just something that he wanted to explore. Uh, so we're, you know, we get to be the beneficiaries of of that of that level of creativity and determination and then you know that goes directly to the the second part of the question which is really about celebrity brands and it, i'm gonna i'll try to be you know a, as objective and as fair as i can on this just because it's very i feel like it's something the general whiskey market doesn't care that much about in a certain way, like they don't mind that Bob Dylan is behind Heaven's Door. They don't mind that, you know, George Clooney's behind Casamigos. There, it's, it's maybe it's a draw, maybe it's not. But there, there are a small but vocal group who really hate it when when a celebrity just kind of slaps their name on the label and puts out a product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, clearly, that's not happening here. And I, I don't, from what I've heard, that's not what happened to Jack Daniels either. So that's that's not. Um, you know, there's no accusations there, but the the point really being, there are clear pitfalls and potholes with having a celebrity involved with a brand. Uh, with those potential pitfalls in place, I'm trying to phrase this question right, and I feel like I'm grasping at it, but you know, what what is uh, Eric's role? Like how, how in depth is he going to be with the, with the product, with the marketing? Um, Cause I know this isn't a one-time thing. This is you're planning on multiple releases of different products. So what, how deeply will Eric be involved? Let's put it that way. And with all of this, how do you foresee kind of avoiding some of those celebrity whiskey, your celebrity spirits pitfalls? Um. Great, great question. So there are clearly a lot of celebrity whiskeys out there. And I 
my personal experience, I have, this is not the first phone call I've gotten from someone who has a notable name that wanted to produce a whiskey, usually give them someone else's number because what they're looking to do is put their name on uh, something that's not compelling or interesting in any kind of way. And, you know, good luck to them. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, this is a unique situation. He said off the bat that he didn't want his name on the label and his name is not on the label. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is that all of a sudden, that is a very different approach to a quote celebrity product. Don't put my name on the label. I don't want to have my signature on it. Um, certainly the other brands that you mentioned have leaned into that because celebrities have a certain amount of credibility in, in, sure. in our society because people feel like they know them or they know something of what if they're if if their music is of quality or their acting or movies are of quality, then surely their spirits must be of quality as well. Um again, Eric's not afraid to just this is not the first time nor the last that he chooses the opposite of what is conventional wisdom. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very common if you have a celebrity brand to write your name in big letters on the front of the bottle. This doesn't happen here, right? This is this is not his name is not on the bottle. Um, so uh, the the pitfalls that you know that's one way of avoiding it. Um, also, you know, conventional wisdom in the spirits industry is come out with a product that is equivalent to other products, put a celebrity's name on it, and it's more likely to sell and you can flip the company real quickly. Because there's a lot of case studies of this happening. Like a lot yeah. of people have done this. Um, put it in a weird bottle or just put their name or their picture sometimes on it. Um, this was not his intention, which is you know, frankly what I found so interesting and compelling and, uh, and, and, and made me say this could be a really interesting to, uh, journey to go along with. Uh, so we're, we're not leaning too heavily into that from a product point of view. Um, what, what I can say is that while his name is not on the bottle, the concept for the liquid, which is a unique concept that we should talk about, um, does very much come from him and from at least uh, my take on his music and what I heard and thinking about uh, what what I, at least what I took out of his music um, and his artistry, I feel like we were able to, to at least attempt somewhat successfully to put into a, into a liquid concept, into, into the bottle. Um, so yeah, we did not lean into the celebrity uh, in any kind of significant way in the ways that other folks do. Um, it really is a, about the team. Um, what's his level of involvement? He's on the phone calls. He's intimately involved with everything from the design of the bottle to very, you know, evaluating various prototypes of the blend um, to the verbiage on the labels and everything in between he is, he's not ceding responsibility of this brand and this company to other people. Very much, both he and Raj are very much involved uh, really with any decision that's being made. So let's jump from that right into the creative process. 
So you mentioned you've seen him in concert now. Uh, you in the releases in the press releases, uh, much was made of of you immersing yourself in his music to get a sense of his ethos, his what what he's interested in, how he comes about, how he expresses himself. So from a let's call it an artistic sense or blender sense, um, you know, walk us through that. Like real paint a picture of what it's like. You teased a little bit earlier with um, you know, being at a concert and seeing grown men crying and all this, but you know, paint the picture of how that translates into a blend. Uh, he's an incredible performer. And if you have the opportunity of seeing him at a concert, I absolutely recommend it. He's like an artist in his prime. Um, but I was very curious about his, his music. I knew some of his music. I wasn't intimately familiar with all of his albums. I, the song that I was most familiar with is a song called Springsteen about Bruce Springsteen. And uh, Bruce Springsteen is important to me for many reasons. He's the one of the soundtracks of my entire life, but he's also uh, the very first conversation that I had with my wife when we first met was about Bruce Springsteen and our favorite Bruce Springsteen songs. And it just so happened that the very first conversation I had with my wife was about um, a song on Springsteen's first album called For You, which is a deep cut. It's not on any of the greatest hits, but for me, it was like my favorite song uh, by the guy. And when I met my uh, wife, she, she knew all of the words to the song. And uh, one of our first dates was to a Springsteen concert. And, and so Springsteen always meant a lot to me personally. So I knew the song Springsteen. And, uh, and there's some great poetry in that song. Uh, and so that, that I, was, I was familiar with a couple of his songs. I knew that he was a poet and a good singer and that he and that he and I maybe shared some references because the way he sings about Springsteen was very much how I feel about that person, who, that singer who's incredibly important in my life. I'm a music geek. I love music. Music is the sound, you know, I have music playing all the time since I was a kid, I've been playing music constantly, a huge record collection. I'm a horrible musician, um, but I but I, I love music. Um, and when I finally had the opportunity of putting on a nice set of headphones and uh, I lit a cigar and I had some whiskey and I listened to Eric's albums all the way through, all of them, um, I had more than one cigar. And what surprised me um, or what really stuck with me was that this is a certainly country and it's in the it's in the form of country music. That's clear. But there are so many references from the start of his career to his most recent releases throughout where he is he's referencing literature, he's referencing um blues, deep blues. Um I was listening to a song and he references you know the song One Bourbon, One Scotch, One Beer, which when I was growing up, I remember. Uh, George Thurgood and the Destroyers. I had a tape that had, uh, I think it was a single. They used to have single tapes and you know, one song on either side and it wouldn't come in a plastic case. It would come in a paper sleeve. Um, that's how singles came in cassettes when I was a kid. And on one side, it had Bad to the Bone, which had a great video of him in a pool hall. And like he uh, hits the, the cigarette ash and then the ball goes in. It's incredible. It's, it sticks with me to this point. And on the other side was one bourbon, one scotch, one beer, which uh, you know I later came to understand 
uh, the, the version that, that I love is, is by John Lee Hooker, who's a Detroit, we claim him in Detroit. Other people claim him too, but he came to Detroit and played, played music. So he talks about one bourbon, one scotch, one beer. He talks about uh, all kinds of, of references from Springsteen to, to you know, George Thurgood and, and John Lee Hooker. Um, there is like Appalachian and Scottish style folk music and melodies throughout uh, his 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 catalog, just a ton of different types of music. And then I also hear like arena rock and you can hear sort of like hip hop influenced drums on a bunch of tracks. And it, it struck me that, yeah, this is country music, but this is someone who knows how to pull the different musical traditions and put them together in his own way. Um, it really reminded me, I don't know if you saw this doc, this Ken Burns documentary about country music. Uh, Ken, Ken, yet. Mm. Oh, it's so good. So Ken Burns from Ann Arbor um, is an incredible uh, documentary filmmaker. He has this documentary about the history of country music. And throughout the documentary, one of the people who uh, kind of serves as uh, one of the experts is, is an amazing musician named Marty Stewart. Uh, who plays with a group called the Fabulous Superlatives. Uh, and it was beautiful name. Um, later, I find out when I go and visit um, Eric's, uh, Eric Church's office that Marty Stewart's with the same company. In his office, Marty Stewart's office is right there. But in this documentary by Ken Burns, Marty Stewart talks about something called the rub. And the rub is when blues music and music from the Appalachians and, and, and from Irish Scott folk music, it all kind of comes together and, 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 and there's friction and that's and country music kind of comes out of that, that rub of different traditions coming together. And as I was listening to Eric's music, I was thinking, this is a modern version of that. Like what they were talking about, the birth of country music a hundred years ago, these like forms of art coming together and creating something new. I'm hearing a contemporary version of that in Eric's music in a way that I don't hear in most music. A lot of folks are like true to form. I love it when different musicians, when musicians can pull together these different threads, like the Pogues, they can bring together punk and traditional Irish music, for instance, like that works. Um, and I heard Eric pulling together a ton of different traditions into his music. And it reminded me of back in my bartending days, uh, you know, well, the thinking was, He's, he's able to put all these different traditions together. What, you know, a whiskey, what would a whiskey be that could pull together different whiskey making traditions and put them together in a unique way? Just like Eric's pulling together these musical traditions, go around the world, find great whiskeys, but find out how they can fit together in a new kind of form of whiskey. That was the original idea. And then took a, this kind of weird step further and thought, well, Eric's music's in the form of country music the form of American whiskey, that one of the kind of ways that we define American whiskey is this concept of a mash bill. Uh, you know, there's all these different mash bills, but there's actually only a handful of mash bills that folks, you know, in the commodity mash bill, the most common mash bill has 21% rye. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually two different forms of the 21% mash bill. This is the 75, 21, you know, four, 75% uh, corn. But there's another one that is popular in Tennessee, which is 70% corn, 21% rye, 9% single or 9% malted barley. And I thought to give this concept of like pulling together different whiskeys from different places, different categories of whiskey, 
the form of American whiskey, it would be interesting to do the blend in proportions of a recognizable mash bill. Kind of a novel idea. I'm sure people have done this before, but I'm unaware of it. Um, and so we started prototyping with it, thinking, you know, we had a lot of ideas, but we started prototyping with that one. And it turned out it was actually really cool. We really liked it. We actually tried the 75214. We tried the 70. Uh, 21.9. We actually tried some 80.10.10s. We tried a 60.36.4. Uh, we tried a lot of mash bills with, with various stocks of whiskey that we had access to. And this is the one that we really liked because it was very much unlike anything else to my palate, anything else that was out there. But it made sense sort of on an intellectual level, but it also just made sense as a whiskey on your palate. Um, and all of those things coming together, it just seemed like, okay, well, that's an interesting concept that we're unaware if anyone's ever tried it before. It did remind me of being a bartender back in the day. And, uh, you know, I come from, uh, yeah, I worked a still for a long time, every day. I ran a still and turned the steam valve and did mashing and fermentation and everything. But really, my palate was developed when I was a bartender. I can't think of a job out there where you get a better sense of palate development than as a bartender. Um, there's no other there's no other job out there where you can try hundreds of wines or hundreds of spirits and take meticulous notes. And over the course of years, you can develop your preferences and maybe your even your style of what you like or what doesn't exist, but you would like for it to exist. Um, and I've told the story before of when I was a bartender, happy hour was you got a graduated cylinder in front of you. And for 10 bucks, you got the back bar and you could blend 50 mils, 50 milliliters of any dram you wanted. And you could blend bourbon, scotch. You could just blend all single malts. You could blend Japanese whiskey with scotch whiskey and Irish whiskey blend anything you want, as long as you wrote down the proportions and kind of scored it. So, okay, well, this works. Well, this doesn't work. And it kind of took, became a popular thing to do. I'm, I'm surprised it's not done more often, frankly. Um, if I ever have a bar again, uh, I will definitely have graduated cylinders because what it, what it means is that all of the products behind the bartender, they're not, yes, they can be enjoyed as finished goods. It's fine, right? Go ahead, enjoy your name brand thing. But there's another perspective. Those are all ingredients. And you sitting at the bar are a creator, not a passive enjoyer of booze, which is fine as well. But you have the opportunity to make something that you've never had before and to view these finished products behind you as ingredients, as inputs. And you can make whatever determination you want of what should go together. And it should happen without any regard to geopolitical boundaries or designations just what goes well together. So for example, you could start with a bourbon, um, you know, and, and, and give it a really nice uh, peated scotch viscous low note. And you could throw a nice Irish, you know, a very aromatic Irish whiskey as the top note. And, and bourbon is, is, you know, the majority of it. And that's going to give you a tram that you're not going to find in any bottle. You'll only find it in the glass in front of you. Um, and so as I was, you know, as we were thinking about Eric's music, 
And this concept of making a whiskey sort of in the form of a mash bill with whiskeys from all over, I kept on going back to this memory of being a bartender and how exciting it was to taste these whiskeys coming together uh, just, you know, one at a time, 50 milliliters at a time. So there are a couple of things that I'm thinking about now, which is first one is the blending of across the country lines. Um, And I'm going to come back to that in a second. Uh, But just to address the graduated cylinders, it's been a while, you know, that we've talked about, I have a biochem background originally. um, And then heresy went to medieval studies, but uh, we, uh, I was at an event uh, just last week uh, at that travel bar and it was with heaven Hill. Bernie lovers was there. It was all about um, Elijah Craig. And it was basically, they took, it, it was an event they had never done before. We all had all 30, I would guess of us had, we each had three 200 milliliter bottles of an eight, a nine and a 10 year old Elijah Craig Bow pick done in New York. All of us had different ones. So 30 different eight, 30 different nine, 30 different tens. Hmm. Gave us that an empty 200 mil bottle, graduated cylinder and said, have at it. And so each of us came up with our own individual blends out of that. And they were all completely different because they all had different bases, different, you know, some people hated their nine-year-old whiskeys. I, mine was very heavy and varnishy and uh, it reminded me of pre-fire Heaven Hill and some of the older label Elijah Craig Barrel Proofs. So without being the kind of what I call oak water of the EC 18 and 23s. So um, I used that as a significant proportion of my blend because it, it wasn't so much about the flavor, but it added so much mouthfeel and body that I knew that the flavoring agents could be on top of that, but that was going to set a base. Um, and now I have that and it's uh, it was a wonderful experience. To, and it was just fun to get, have a graduated cylinder in front of you and be checking out where the meniscus line is and making sure it's right on. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, so the other thing I want that it made me think of too, was there, there was a time and, and you know, I know uh, you address this a bit in your conversation with, with Mark from whiskey cask cast, excuse me, uh, that there was a time when blending was the norm. Uh, I mean, to a, to a large extent, it still is, but um, even for American companies. And it got me to thinking about a bottle that I have um, that I should share with you that I haven't talked about in a long time on the podcast, but it's a bottle from um, Lou Rosenstiel, Lou uh, Rosenstiel's 65th birthday, I want to say. It was a one-off bottling made for him from Shenley uh, when it was still a multinational giant. Uh, blends in a 60-20-20 blend Canadian, Scotch, and bourbon whiskey, Kentucky bourbon whiskey. Nothing under 12 years old. Um, so, it, And the story of how I found that bottle randomly could be a podcast unto itself, but uh, it's a really fascinating mix because you don't, you just don't have that anymore. There are no other products and this, you know, what you have now with 
uh, with Outsider Spirits, with the legend, with Whiskey Gypsy is one of the few to do this now. But you don't really see multinational blends. They're just not out there. I mean, I, I'm I'm struggling, even as I say it, to think of regular releases. You know, there there's I and I say that specifically because I know Suntory put out one last year that was World Whiskey AO uh that did blend from around the world, but it's in terms of regular releases, there just aren't any anymore. And even that bottle from Rosensteel was a one-off bottle came in a glass decanter that I had to check for lead and all of that. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll make sure to, to um, get you some of that to try. It's really incredible. Uh, but there, there, so the thought out of that, I guess, is what from a whiskey historian perspective, what was it about, cross-border blending that it, it was so rare and still to this day remains nearly I'm struck I can't remember the I'm blanking on the word right there but like it's just not there it does it doesn't exist we are coming out of a dark era or I should say a very, you know, limited range of whiskeys. Um, you brought up Shenley and people these days aren't necessarily familiar with Shenley, which was massive. It's like the Diageo of its day. We've spoken about Shenley before because I'm obsessed with, with finding old Shenley advertisements. Old oh, Shenley right. advertisements. Right. Yes. And, and I'm going to bring up a different one now, but previously we had a conversation um, about a Shenley advertisement from Vanity Fair's December 1934 issue, which was, uh, to me, the first mention I ever saw of Rosen Rye being the most flavorful grain Mother Correct. Earth produces. How, and it how could I have forgotten rideable. that? How could I have forgotten that from Arbs? I, I want to apologize for that almost, because I just blanked completely that that was part of the story there but you're completely right sorry continue i have another shudley advertisement that i i, I in what I, I go on i buy them i buy the original versions of i have a collection of shenley advertisements because shenley what shenley was doing um uh it, if you're a whiskey maker and you want great ideas go look up what shenley was doing 100 years ago prior to prohibition or even after prohibition um there, they had a, a, a doctor who wrote a distiller's manual. His name's eluding me. His name, Doctor Something. He wrote it in 1924. And if that's that's like this hidden holy uh, holy grail. I haven't found that yet. I've been looking for it. Um, but my intuition is that there's a lot of information. It was like a distiller's manual from Shenley in 1924. If anybody out there has got it, let me know. But um, there was another Shenley advertisement that I found and, and went on wild goose trips. I actually think I didn't buy it from eBay. I think I bought it from AB Books, Abe Books, which is an online bookseller. Uh, and it was about a Shenley blend. I'll send you a copy of it. It says like four different states of where the whiskeys in the blend came from and what the attributes were of each state. 
It was like Kentucky for robust body, Pennsylvania for deep flavor, Maryland for, you know, something else. And it occurred to me that folks used to have no problem listening to this, blending across state lines very explicitly because of the unique characteristics of each one of the inputs. Um, so Shenley, again, Shenley, I'm sure someone's written a history book on Shenley. I'm not a whiskey historian. Um, you know, I, I rely on whiskey historians for good ideas, uh, which I try to like execute. Uh, but Shenley knew a lot about um, the qualities of various varietals of grain relative to other like grains. That's, you know, the Rosenrise story. Um, but they also understood they had stacks of whiskey all over the country, and they understood that blending them together in different proportions would yield different products. Um, yeah, can't can't say enough about how great Shenley, how, how influential Shenley has been sort of in my whiskey making. And you can always, all the good ideas are in the past, right? Um, I, I don't know if you've read this book, Brand Mysticism, um, by- uh, Yes. <laughs> Uh, Stephen oh, Grass and, uh, and, uh, yes. and, and Aaron uh, Goldfarb. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the things that Stephen Grassy says in it is that all the good ideas are in the past. Like, just look to the past. You'll find all the good ideas. And I, I believe that um, deeply. Uh, but in terms of international blends, there are business reasons why it's been difficult to do. We live in a we, we work in an industry that's so highly regulated and the consumers, you know, are taught that certain political geographies make superior products to other political geographies, even if, you know, for instance, uh, you know, there's Kentucky, Tennessee, and Southern Indiana, all in the Ohio River Valley, are pretty much the same soil type and weather conditions. The only difference between these things is humans came and drew some arbitrary lines. Now you have states, right? Mm -hmm. um, them's fighting words in some circles, but I believe that it has to do with uh, soil conditions and growth zone, USDA growth zones and climate. You know, mm -hmm. then you have places like Michigan that have three vastly different soil types and di three different. There's 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 more. Um, and I'm just using Michigan as an example. There's other states, certainly California and others. But we have uh, more diverse uh, weather conditions and soil types in Michigan than all of Kentucky, Tennessee, and you know Indiana put together, which is why we have such, in Michigan, such diverse agriculture. We can grow all this different stuff because there's all these little microclimates. Um, but it just makes you think that these lines that humans have put on a map has nothing to do with the quality of agriculture and whiskey's an agricultural product. Sometimes it has to do with the distilling philosophies uh, can, can sort of be based on these political geographies. Um, it is my hope, and you've been, you personally have been very much at the forefront of highlighting uh, spirits from uh, regions that Americans might not be familiar with, but should be. Um, and again, just like at the bar, these spirits can be enjoyed as a finished product in and of themselves, representing a place. And they should be understood and valued and respected as such, but they're also inputs into something that maybe has never been made before. And so as we're seeing these incredible new whiskeys 
first of all, coming up in places, I'll give you, you know, Israel as an example, because milk and honey just did so well at, you know, these huge yeah, they, international competitions. They swept a, a lot of that. Yeah, It's a young distillery. There's all these young distilleries that have figured out, okay, I'm here. These are my maturation conditions. This is the growth zone that I'm in. This is what I can make really well. Uh, and we're starting to see places like Israel and India and other places have spirits that are appealing to an American palate. It's not to say that they weren't good before. They could have been totally fine, but they're being, they're now more accessible than ever. Someone was going to come in and say, our whiskey making philosophy is we're going to buy, find the best spirits from wherever the hell they are. And we're going to blend them together. You know, this was an inevitability. Um, again, to your point, we hadn't really seen a whole lot of it. Um, someone was going to come along and do it. And we figured we have, you know, Raj from uh, India. We have Eric from North Carolina, which has an amazing whiskey making tradition. You know, so many of the folks came to Kentucky and Tennessee from North Carolina because prohibition started very early there. The temperance movie, movement was very strong there early on, 1850s and 60s. At one point, Statesville uh, in North Carolina, I believe was uh, the largest producer of whiskey in the United States, is, is, is what I'm told. And until it was kind of, the, they put the clamp down and they came uh, out west to Kentucky and Tennessee. Um, and then, of course, I'm, you know, I'm coming from Michigan, where we have a proud tradition of supporting Canadian whiskey makers uh, by smuggling their goods across America's longest uh, international border. Um, the border between uh, Michigan and Canada uh, is has always been very porous. And at times when it was difficult to get uh, American-made whiskey, we Michiganders uh, came to the service of, of whiskey drinkers and, and figured out how to get good Canadian whiskey into the United States. So we've always been blending, you know, in my area, we've always been blending Canadian whiskey with, you know, American styles. Um, someone was going to come along and make the blending of whiskeys without any uh, notion that political geography is important. It's just about the whiskey. Someone was going to come out and do this, and we figured, why, why the hell not us? Honestly, as much as people want to search for inspiration, and I'm, I'm certainly someone who likes to ask the why questions of how people think, sometimes it does come down to just... I've got an idea. Why the hell not? Why the hell not us? Like you just said, no one else is doing it. No one else that we know of is doing it. Let's we know it's good. I mean, I knew it was good for my bartending days. You, you mentioned a, a really cool blending experience that you did. I'll, I'll and it's awesome participating in in the blending of whiskeys. One thing I will say about American whiskey, bourbon in particular, is is yes, there's a lot of there's there's a good amount of diversity in american whiskeys but american whiskey is a very particular style it's very heavy on oak and it, it it's highly influenced by the cask um usually the primary grain is yellow dent number two mm -hmm. uh, which nobody cultivates because it tastes good that's just oh, not yeah, the reason why you you do it um it's a good source of starch which converts into ethanol right and then you can use that yeah. ethanol to pull out barrel flavors um so nothing nothing against that it's fine but um 
when we would make blends at the bar of various bourbons, oftentimes it was difficult to differentiate between one and the next because the style of American whiskey is, is just certainly relative to a place like Scotland, where you have massive amounts of diversity in the characteristics available in those whiskeys. That just doesn't exist in, in, in the United States in any kind of meaningful way. So if you do choose to blend whiskeys, it, it, it makes a lot of sense to look outside of the United States where there's a lot, a much stronger diversity of whiskey character for the blends to service those blends. Um, so yeah, blending American whiskey is awesome. You can do a lot of cool things. You've got bourbon and corn whiskey and rye whiskey and wheat whiskey. For the most part, that's what you've got. For the most part, it's been aged in new American casks. Uh, so what can you do? You can barrel finish it. You can stick it in the secondary barrel, which is great. Of course, a lot of those, many of the most incredible finishing barrels come from overseas and may have had really interesting whiskeys in them beforehand. Um, so why not look overseas for those whiskeys? You know, I work with a bunch of barrel brokers. We have outsiders and for other things we you know, one of the most, I don't know, have you ever had, have you ever done a podcast with a whiskey broker, with someone who goes all over the world looking for secondary casks to sell them to American whiskey makers? Wolfburn Distillery captures the spirit of Scotland's far north. As the northernmost distillery on the Scottish mainland, Wolfburn ties together long fermentation, slow distillation, and seaside maturation for unique and superb character. Originally founded in 1821, this exceptional distillery was restored in 2012 to its original greatness resurrecting a 200-year-old distillery on the largest blanket peat bog in all of Europe. Whether you're drinking Northland, Wolfburn's first expression, aged in American oak quarter casks, Aurora, a beautiful sherried whiskey laid down in a combination of bourbon and Oloroso sherry casks, Morvern, their lightly peated variety, or Langskip, their cast strength release, there's a Wolfburn for everyone. Arriving to the States later this year, is their first permanent age state of release, the 10-year-old. You can also find small batch releases and limited edition bottlings at specialty retailers across the U.S. Reach out to our friends at Impex Beverages for more information on where to find your favorite expression. Wolfburn Distillery. Fortune favors the brave. You know, I... I don't think I have... I was supposed to do one with... Um... I hope she won't mind me calling her out because I'm still trying to get her on as a guest. Jessica Atkins. Um, Incredible. Know, but, yeah. yeah. But that's exactly why I wanted to have her on was to talk about that. So future episodes. These Jessica, people are heroes. Get back in touch like, <laughs> like, like you could, you could, you could do a couple of these interviews because these folks are as responsible for the level of diversity that we see in American whiskey as anyone, because the whiskeys are, by and large, very similar. By and large, very similar, and they're being di they're being differentiated because of these casks, right? These barrel brokers, who especially the ones who go out and visit the places and select the barrels, and I'm happy to give you some phone numbers. They're constantly they're texting me from these totally, you know, here we are in some area in Spain or Croatia or Hungary that you've never heard of. And they say, hey, I found this incredible barrel. My response is always, 
I'll buy the barrel, but bring me some of the liquid that was inside of it too. I want that too. <laughs> I need to know what was in the barrel that makes it so fantastic. These barrel brokers are trying such interesting stuff that never makes it to the United States. When you see something aged in, uh, you know, peach brandy barrels from Greece or something, those barrels have so much character in them, but the brandy that was inside of them, that has incredible character too, right? So anyhow, it would be an interesting podcast to talk to some of those folks, but that, you know, secondary barrels, that's how we derive a lot of the flavors that, that we have in American whiskey because the whiskey itself is uh, sort of limited in what it can express. Um, but going international in terms of whiskey selection solves for that problem. I think, well, first let's just, with the uh, with the secondary barrels, it's I agree with you. It's important to taste what was in them, and mm-hmm. a bunch of the kind of let's call them for better or worse flash in the pan crazes of certain barrel types. Like you mentioned, Hungary there was the Tokai finishing. Um, that right now Ambarana is the hottest barrel out there. Um, those trends or you know, flashes, however long they last, those start with somebody trying a product somewhere new and saying, wow, this barrel is really weird and interesting. Let's add that in. I mean, in Japan, that's the Mizunar oak is a native species there, but yeah, I don't know who the first one to bring it over to U.S. whiskey was, probably Bainbridge or, or um, someone like that. But the point being that it takes someone to go over, try it, and say this would pair well. Now, something else that I've talked about on the podcast, and this is specific to American whiskey and a complaint that I often have about it, is that, I mean, bourbon in particular, or at least corn-based distillate, just does not hold up well to secondary finishing for me. Rye holds up a little bit better, um, particularly the higher the rye content, uh, and also, you know, throwing in certain varieties single malts can usually stand up pretty well but especially with bourbons you know there is there are so few for me that are taking bourbons from any source and finishing them and doing it in a way where the finish and the bourbon or the whiskey are in balance you know you can still tell what's underneath you can appreciate the finishing cask um, I usually look to Doc Swinson's as, as my favorite. Uh, we were chatting before. I uh, Tonight, as we're recording, I tasted Blood Oath Pack 9. It's three Kentucky whiskeys, three Kentucky bourbons, excuse me, uh, with the youngest one finished in Olorosa Sherry casks. That was really well done. Uh, I haven't loved all the Blood Oath Packs, but the last two have been real bangers. And there's a certain, for me, there's a hesitation when I look at American whiskey being aged in secondary cask is not all of it. I'd say the majority of it just doesn't, it's either done for a trend or for the hell of it rather than it being for a purpose and for, you know, really trying it out to get a, a balance. Like whoever thought of the, the friggin' everyone who's listening knows which brand I'm talking around, but um, you know, with the coconut raspberry finish and all this stuff. So anyway, the, where was I going with that? The point being, um, there's 
that's all that's why I like the idea so much of this international because there there is a beauty of American spirits of bourbon of rye of bourbon in particular being a uniquely American spirit and the beauty of it doesn't have to get lost by including something Canadian in this in the case of whiskey gypsy which we will talk about before uh, we're up I promise uh, uh, and you know, if we were to add in a scotch or an Irish whiskey, there's there's nothing wrong with that. It could lend itself very well, but someone's got to take the leap to do it. And there's, yeah, they just haven't done it. Uh, but in this case, and I'm looking, I'm turning my head actually to look at the packaging of this. And I put up some pictures on Instagram of when I got this of uh, the journey batch one whiskey gypsy. And I think of it this way. I mean, this was a, um, a purposely prepared press sample and it was done beautifully. You know, it comes in what looks and functions as a book. It's got a cutout. It has a fr- the first few pages, which are actually, you know, you can write in them as a travel journal. And then you turn a few more pages and suddenly there's a cutout with the bottle inside. And especially, I think, for a press bottle, you don't have to do that. I got, I mean, personally, I'm just as happy getting a two-ounce sample bottle of something uh, with the handwritten label on it. And, you know, you hope nothing leaked in transit kind of thing. Uh, but there is a certain beauty to having this because even as a press sample, I can now like put this on my shelf. I can put the book on my shelf and it'll look beautiful. And as more volumes of this come out, then you have a collection. So, and the last, so with the last, well, actually I'll hold off on the packaging question for a sec, because I want to talk about that, but with the first product, so we've talked about it just to make it perfectly clear to people what the, what the blends are or what the blend is, I should say. It is a 70% Indiana bourbon made from 99% corn and 1% malted barley, distilled in Indiana, aged seven to eight years. The second component, 21% Canadian rye, made from 91% rye, 9% malted barley, distilled in Alberta, aged 20 years. And the last 9% is 100% malted barley from Indiana, aged four years. Now, uh, you know, NDAs and stuff aside, uh, may I assume from nonverbal contact that Indiana means what we think it means in Indiana? Sure. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we're listen. We're about transparency, which is why we write it very much on the back of the label. <laughs> I mean, you you never know. There's there's an NDA somewhere. I don't want anyone crossing that. That's <laughs> not my business. Um, but from from uh, that particular distillery, particularly the single malt. I'm trying to remember who I had of the other day that, that I had single malt from that distillery. I was like that. I have never tried before. Tried a lot of their products in the, over the years from a lot of different producers, but never the single malt. And um, it was, I remember the other product was very, very different. And this one, it added a nice round body to it that that single malt can do um, even at a younger age, which four years, you know, relatively younger age by itself. And then, compared to its sister components, also in great. So overall, you're blending, well, which 
what was the order in which you found the right components? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to go back to the book that you got in the press kit just real quick. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it is a real book. And what struck me the most about it, because maybe this is just kind of my way of interacting with the world, is it smells like a book. Mm -hmm. It does. It, does. It, it, it smells like when when you order a new book that like just mm -hmm. came out and it's got like not the old musty smell. I love the old musty smell from a used book, but mm -hmm. this has a great new book smell. And then the cutout is very Shawshank Redemption-y. Uh, yes. If you're a fan of that movie. And when I saw that, I was like, yeah, that's very Shawshanky. I love it. Um, the components were selected intentionally um, because what we wanted to do in this first expression was highlight grain. And by choosing a 99% corn bourbon at seven and eight years old, we could have gone with something that was 13 years old, tried those, but they tasted more like wood. We wanted, we were, this isn't about age. Things don't just get better over time. They change over time. And what we were trying to do in this is really highlight the grain. Um, the 20, so that is why we selected the 99% corn bourbon at that age, at an older age, there is less grain that comes through and more wood. But at that age, there is a good balance between the two that, that would serve as the, the, the foundation of the blend. We tried a lot of different ryes from all over the world for this first blend. And there is something about uh, a rye that's two decades old that, can, that was aged in a cool climate, um, which is different than a rye that was aged in a warm climate or a new American oak. There are nuances of flavor that develop in cool climates that don't develop in, in warm climates, which has to do with, uh, there's chemical reactions that involve oxygen in, in whiskey, just chemical reactions that happen over time, decades. Uh, a cold liquid can hold more oxygen than a warm liquid. And if you have something that's matured for a long time in a cool climate, you get, I believe, more of these esterification reactions, reactions that involve oxygen than you get in a warm climate where the liquid, just because of its temperature, can't hold as much to, uh, dissolved oxygen inside of it. Um, and, and that component in particular had such a beautiful, viscous mouthfeel and aromas of was like at different dilution points, different aromas were coming out, different uh, volatiles were coming out of solution at different dilution points. Um, it was just this incredible uh, Canadian ride that we knew we wanted to have as, as the 21% component bond. We could have gone with the 36 and it would have been very, very interesting as well. And then the reason why we chose a four-year-old uh, malted barley wasn't because we, you know, we could have used a, a 30 year old scotch, right? As the 9% component, that would have been totally fine conceptually. Or we could have used an older American single malt. But the older American single malts past that age, the barrel started to take over too much. Mm -hmm. And it lost that barley character that we were looking for. You lose that over time. So we wanted something. For the malt for the nine percent malted barley component, we really needed a spirit that 
for this product wasn't aged 10 years, wasn't aged 20 or 30 years. Future products, I can't speak for it. I think you can see a lot of really cool stuff. Um, for Legacy 001, sort of an introduction to a concept. Um, we wanted to make sure that the, the corn component was very much about the corn and not just about new American oak in a spirit that had been sitting in wood for a very long time, giving off nothing but you know, wood character. Uh, the rye needed to be a very special rye um, with the characteristics that were different than other ryes. We found that in the 20 year old. And then again, very intentionally chose uh, you know, a four and a half year old American single malt because of its character, not in spite of its age. Its age is totally immaterial here. Um, you know, we, we could have wowed everyone with lot with major age statements, but that's not the point. The point is make sort of reconstitute a bourbon mash bill using green forward spirits in a way that people haven't probably had before. I've never had before. Um, and, uh, and, and, and big props to Raj and Eric who could have taken the easy route and thrown a famous name on a label and used the same juice that everyone, you know, the same spirit that everyone else uses with a major age statement, called it a day, been done. They chose to do something un very unconventional. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, they chose to do something that's not particularly, you know, market tested as far as these kinds of blends of who, who blends a four-year-old single malt and a 20-year-old rye and a 99% corn bourbon. I mean, just, just it, it's not an intuitive thing to do. Um, but we went through a lot of prototypes of different different mash bills, different different spirit inputs, and and this is the one that we just kind of kept on coming back to. So this this one's just really it's different, and hopefully it pushes the conversation about what blending can be forward. And it you mentioned that it, particularly the corn whiskey, I'd imagine the others as well. At a certain dilution point, different aromas, different compounds start coming out. Uh, it's worth noting that this is not, if, if it is diluted, it's, it seems minimal. It comes out at 115 proof, um, which I'll admit, it was a little difficult to find. Um, it, it was a little difficult to find what the proof was, but I found it eventually because I was like, this is definitely not 90. So, yeah. you know, it's higher than that, but I wanted to know what it was. But, um, you know, it's not, it's maybe diluted a little bit, but not uh, not a lot. 115 is still a very solid proof, even for a proof hound like I am. Um, so you mentioned, though, that there are two components to that that uh, I want to dig into a little bit. And I know we're running a little short. so. Yeah. Uh, uh, but the first one being that it's, as a concept, relatively untested. Um, and then subsequently to that, as a product, it's very practically untested. Uh, how did you and the team go about kind of assessing what the what the market would look like for a product like this? Yeah, so in terms of untested, there there are not a lot of blends of this sort out there. We have several people who have helped us evaluate prototypes, various prototypes, and feedback from a very wide and diverse you know, group of 
folks that have had a lot of whiskey and are familiar with the whiskey making process and blending, uh, their feedback was sort of instrumental in coming up with this blend very much a, a team effort. Um, uh, remind me what the question was real quick. Oh, um, assessing the market. Yeah, assessing the market. Uh, we know that America that that blended whiskeys are on the ascendance. That consumers are more interested in blending whiskey blended whiskeys than than ever before. That blended whiskeys is not a dirty word any longer. Um, that unfortunately we have antiquated regulations that don't differentiate between whiskeys that are blended using the most premium inputs available anywhere uh, versus someone who's using <laughs> two-year-old bourbon uh, and, and GNS, right? As a, mm -hmm. that they all fit into the same category, unfortunately. Um, so it, this concept wouldn't have flown five years ago, but there has been so many interesting blends that have captivated people and, and won awards and been successful in the market that um, that the team at Outsiders decided, okay, it's the right idea to take this category, which is a which is ill-defined, a bad you know, it, and let's push it even further. Let's see how far we can we can take it. So again, I don't think that anyone <laughs> It's 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 a little bit market tested in that uh, you can look over the past couple of years of top ten lists and generally you'll find something that is not a single source distiller. You'll find that a blend. Um, oftentimes it's a brand that's sourcing from multiple distilleries, which is great. Um, those are starting to show up in the market. So again, someone was going to kind of continue this route, and we figured, why not us? Mm we should give a couple of shout outs to that because you know we're no no episode is ever without its contexts and without its uh shout outs so a couple of them being like just speaking to american whiskey we've spoken to a few lost lantern has their vatted malt um borrowed page whose follow-up interview came out earlier today as a recording uh, but also for volume one we had an episode with them and they're blending all american whiskeys now that in itself is a as you said it's a huge step forward from where we were and i agree with you that five years ago the concept even their concepts may not have flown let alone your concept you know outside of spirits concept um and with more and more trying these multi-distillery multi-state blends especially it's pushing the blended whiskey category up from its nadir of yeah that two two-year-old bourbon and a lot of gns and um it's a good thing it's a really good thing and and you know as we said that's blended whiskey in particular is something that i'm very passionate about from a historical perspective and from a from just an enjoyment perspective to see that this is something truly different and yeah, you can in, it, in blending it's, limitless. Whiskey, it's limitless and when you don't care about having bur bourbon in big letters on the label. It's incredibly freeing. If mm -hmm. the point is just find the best whiskeys that are out there that blend together, that are that will yield a product that's greater than the sum of its parts, you don't even have to worry about categories of whiskey anymore. You can blend a, a Canadian with an American single malt. 
Um, and you can develop entirely new characteristics or characteristics that folks haven't had since Shenley was doing this stuff 75 years ago. Um, that for me is incredibly, uh, it's incredibly freeing, right? You don't have the parameters that existed before. It doesn't have to be a bourbon. You can blend a bourbon with a single malt. You can blend it. People, folks have been blending uh, American rye with Canadian rye, for instance, which is sort of crossing the category, but they're not dipping the toe over into bourbon or single malt. These are all components. These are all ingredients at this point. You can certainly choose to release a bourbon and the market will probably thank you for it, right? Because it says bourbon on it, could very well do so. okay. But the opportunity to innovate in the whiskey space has to do with, I believe, blending different categories of whiskey together. And I think the uh, brands and companies just mentioned will would back you on that, that that's the next logical step. As we're uh, getting towards the end of the interview, I wanted to save a question towards the end that um, I didn't really think of right away. But did come up as I was kind of formulating the questions, and it's the the question of uh, branding and, and packaging. So I want to ask you know who you worked with for the packaging for sure, because again, brilliant. And uh, but the first part of it that I have to ask is: Was there any concern from a branding perspective of using the term "gypsy" in the label? Because it's yeah. not it it can be used quite pejoratively in i mean not necessarily areas of the u.s that's more of a european phenomenon i would say but it can be used pejoratively and it has been words coming off right and words coming off of it like gypped comes from gypsy it's g-y-p-p-e-d um things like that so was was there any concern in the branding of using a potentially problematic term yes is the is the short answer it was well what i say is it was a was a conversation that we had um and at the end of the day the term as we use it is the furthest thing from pejorative it comes from a tradition of uh in music for example muddy waters uses you know gypsy woman told my mother before i was born you got a boy child coming going to be a rolling stone um in in one of the songs that i've played for my children since they were inside of my wife's womb is a song called um wiggle wiggle by bob dylan um where wiggle 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 like a gypsy queen uh van morrison sings about the caravan there is a pejorative story in that word but that but it is more than that. It is not just that. That word also has a beautiful and rich history, not just in music, but also in all forms of, in all kinds of forms of art, um, to mean freedom, to mean crossing boundaries. Yes, it has a it has a complex history. Not denying that in any way. But it has it means something else as well. And to focus entirely on the negative connotation without paying any sort of uh, honor to the incredible positive connotations to it as well, 
I think, is to give the folks that would use it pejoratively the upper hand, and they don't deserve that. Yeah, it was, you know, you know me, I don't do gotcha questions on here. And, yeah, it's a great question. But, yeah, but it, it was something that kind of just clicked in as, um, yeah, you never know. Uh, my first trip to Italy, the literally the first thing we were warned about was keep your things in your front pockets in Florence because there are uh, people in carts and people who are going to steal stuff from you. And the guy said in Italian, but um, the translation was literally these gypsies are stealing everything. And that has stuck with me as something. And I mean, we're both from Jewish backgrounds as well. So we have a little bit of the gypsy slash klezmer and the itinerant kind of lifestyle that goes with that as well in our histories. So you're right. It's an, extra, an incredibly complex term, one that does not have to be pejorative, can be, but I think with, with explaining a little more and addressing that question, it can take some of that stigma off of it. And, you know, I don't think that's, I think that's a bit much to ask from a whiskey to take centuries of stigma off of some off of a culture, but um, just the simple knowledge of knowing what the term is, what the term means and where it comes from can be very powerful towards dispelling that. So it's a great but, question and I'm, I'm glad that you asked it, you know, yeah, um, yeah folks that would uh, uh, be derogatory towards Romani or gypsy culture um, don't deserve to have the, the upper hand here. We're, we're celebrating a form of what is called the gypsy spirit, which has existed in music and literature for, for quite a while. Uh -huh. um, and uh, I mean, even my own perspective, I, I worked in uh, France, in, in wineries in France, um, with quite a few itinerant farmers and workers from Morocco and and and, and Romani who, who did refer to themselves very proudly as gypsy. Um, so from my own history, yes, I've heard the, obviously we've all heard the derogatory terms, um, but it's not just that. And, and I think when you, when you let the racists, you know, own a word like that, which has otherwise very positive connotations, again, it's complex, um, but that's not ground that we're willing to cede to those people, to the racists. That's and that's something to be proud of. And so had to ask that. But yeah. we're gonna close on a more on a lighter question than that because that would be a terrible and important, <laughs> but a terrible question to end on. Um and that is uh so before I forget, who did you work with on the packaging? Um uh, we actually worked with a, a number of folks. The packaging, and I've got the bottle here, I don't know if you were mentioning the book, the bottle itself is an absolutely beautiful decanter that looks like hand hammered copper. Again, not a design we'd seen before. And as a wine guy, it's got about the deepest punt on the bottom of the bottle that we've seen. Um, uh, we worked with a designer named David Cole, among other folks. David Cole is an incredible designer up in the Northwest. Um, and uh, I can tell you, is there's more than a few Easter eggs to be found in the packaging. If you buy the bottle, you'll find that there's all kinds of 
cool things to discover. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're incredibly proud of it. There was a lot of thought and consideration that went into it. It's a cool uh, copper thing kind of coin up here. Um, really nice metal around the band, solid wood cork um, with actual cork. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's uh, team spared really no expense in, in creating a package that's very much unlike other packages. What I can say about the hand hammered copper look, if you put a uh, like an LED or a light below it, it, it illuminates and it diffracts light in an absolutely gorgeous way. And uh, yeah, just never seen a hand hammered design like this on a bottle before. No, it is quite attractive. I, I have to say I've gotten more and more of an appreciation for bottle design and, and secondary packaging design. Mm -hmm. And um, one more name to throw out there as well, because we were talking about how it smells like a new book. Um, when I spoke with uh, both Compass Box and Stranger and Stranger, they were talking about uh, Velicor, the release from Compass Box that smelled like old. Well, it was, didn't smell like it, but it was it was inspired by the smell of old books, which is what Velicor means. Um, so there's an element of that. And uh, again, the medievalist in me, anytime you smell a book, new, old, um, hopefully not musty, but anything else brings you joy. So, yes. and book and in books, we find the inspiration, we find the stories and the histories that, as you said, we look to the past for the inspirations. And a lot of that is going to be found in these books that we're reading. And I think we have a conversation to have between the two of us about um, an idea that I had forgotten about and now want to pursue as potentially my next big side project. And uh, we'll take that offline and leave that as a teaser for now. But in the meantime, uh, you can find this first release, the Whiskey Gypsy Legacy Volume 001, The Journey on Reserve Bar. Right now it's shipping to 38 states. Uh, you can, that, and there'll be a link for that in the show notes directly. Um, I, you probably know what Reserve Bar is, but if you don't, don't worry, we got you covered. There'll be a link for it. Uh, we'll also link to any social media. Uh, there will be, I've already posted my, or did I post? If I haven't posted my review, I will post my review. Um, I did quite enjoy it and getting to, but I was waiting probably to talk with Ari before, uh, before posting it. So I got more information. And as always with that, there will be, uh, yeah, any relevant links will be in there. And I encourage you to try it buy it and enjoy it also available in fine retailers throughout the state of tennessee all right so i noticed that can we take one minute to just address that sure. is that simply because eric's from tennessee and wanted to represent there or was there a different reason yeah home, home state of tennessee oh, home we state wanted, state. We wanted, okay <laughs> we wanted to represent wanted to make sure noticed, folks uh yeah, went to support I, our home state i noticed that was the one state that it was like in stores in tennessee i was like okay that's <laughs> Occam's razor, you know, simplest answer is usually the right one. Um, anyway, Ari, thank you so much for coming back on chat about this. Uh, as you have future volumes, you're always welcome back on to chat about them, about the new blends that may be coming in the future that are coming in the future. And uh, with that, we'll say goodnight. Um, you hold on with me for a minute. That's been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast, episode total number 100 in the books. Thank you, everybody, for supporting. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you for the next 100.
Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating and review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps, or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyinmywedderring. That's whiskey with an E, for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon-to-resume Under the Influencer series, and $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or at Whiskey Ring Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Whiskey Ring. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.